You are tuning into Pro Bono Perspectives, live from Brooklyn, where the city never sleeps and purpose is more than just a buzzword. Pro Bono Perspectives brings together leaders that have traveled across sectors, industries, and experiences on their path to creating change for the communities in which they live and work. And I'm your host, Danielle Holly, CEO of Common Impact, a national nonprofit that designs skills-based volunteer programs that amplify the impact of social change organizations by harnessing the talents and the skills of private sector employees. I am lucky enough to cross paths with these leaders every day through my work with Common Impact and can't wait to bring you behind the scenes to share their stories. One of the best parts of my job at Common Impact is meeting leaders of community organizations that are doing incredible work every day. And today, I am excited to welcome to the show one of those leaders, one of Common Impact's partners, Chris Tyson, president and CEO of Bill Baton Rouge, which is a redevelopment authority with a mission to bring together people and resources to promote equitable investment, innovative development, and thriving communities across Baton Rouge, which we'll hear a little bit more about today. I left my conversation with Chris truly inspired, and that's true of so many of the conversations I get to have with our Pro Bono Perspectives podcast guests, but Chris really hit at the heart of something that's so dear to my work and the work of Common Impact. At Common Impact, we think a lot about the power of bringing together folks with different expertise from different sectors and experiences so they can learn from each other, work together to support their shared communities. And Chris talks a lot about that today, changing people's hearts and minds, how it's possible, how skilled volunteering makes it possible, why it's critical in the fight for equity. He also shares this really cool trajectory, his career, what brought him to his work at Bill Baton Rouge, and the organization's commitment to truly understanding the needs of those they serve. Chris, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you here today. Good to be here today. So the organization that you run, Build Baton Rouge, got started in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, redeveloping neighborhoods that I'm sure were ravaged by the storm. And it sounds like you now are focused on an extension of that work, dealing with the racial stratification of the city that persists, continues to exist. Tell us about Bill Baton Rouge's work. What challenges are you trying to solve? What change are you trying to inform? Absolutely. So yes, I mean, the Bill Baton Rouge was formed as the East Baton Rouge Redevelopment Authority in 2007 in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in Baton Rouge. We received an influx of people from New Orleans and other places who had to leave their homes and, and that um, swelled the city temporarily and it also kind of changed the dynamics, I think, in South Louisiana as we began to really think about what it, what it means to kind of live in the vulnerable space of, of the climate crisis uh, and what that meant for how we develop and design our communities going forward. It also exposed a lot of um, challenges in Baton Rouge with dealing with uh, blight, dealing with poverty, dealing with affordable housing. And so 
the organization was formed uh, for that purpose and began doing work primarily in Baton Rouge's disinvested neighborhoods. Uh, they, we went into a period of financial decline and Mayor Broom, our current mayor, uh, recommitted the city's support for the agency when she came into office and in 2018. She asked me to along with the board to take the helm of the organization. And I did so uh, and wanted to focus, as you said, on addressing Baton Rouge's issues of what I call racial and spatial stratification. We are, if you talk to anybody in Baton Rouge, dealing with a tale of two cities uh, crisis. And that is something that we know is the result of decades of race-based housing policy, transportation policy, urban development policy that has been disproportionately borne out by black and brown neighborhoods and strains the bonds of community, increases blight and disinvestment uh, in the community. So that's what we feel um, uh, is our greatest uh, opportunity at this moment and what we're our mission uh, calls us to address. And what does that look like? Now, one of the things that you articulate this tale of two cities, that could be a tagline for COVID-19, right? There's a lot of conversation right now around this K-shaped recovery where organizations, individuals that benefit from privilege are going to come out of this recovery post-vaccine pretty quickly. And we're already seeing signals of that while the communities that low moderate income communities, communities, uh, BIPOC communities, Black, Indigenous people of color will continue to feel detrimental impacts for years to come. So what does your work look like in this context right now? What are you seeing? Well, absolutely. And I think uh, pre-COVID and in the middle of COVID, and I think post-COVID, we have to have a lens of, of, of racial and social equity, uh, which is to say that we have to recognize the uh, gaps and imbalances that exist in our community, the maldistribution of resources, how that has disproportionately impacted the places and spaces where Black and brown communities live and struggle to thrive. And we have to, as a community, determine how to direct resources uh, in that direction, understanding that the challenges that those communities face are the direct result of policy decisions, of legal decisions, of political decisions uh, made over decades of time, and that the same level of focus, the same level of commitment must exist if we are going to uh, turn those uh, areas around equitably. Yes, COVID-19 has exposed what we know about any uh, crisis, that those who are most vulnerable, those who are already in positions of scarcity and deprivation uh, and disinvestment are going to come out of this even worse. And so we are cognizant of that and we think about that as we think about what equitable development looks like. How do we work with community members to help them realize the vision for their communities uh, and then bring the resources and the capacity and the other supports to make that reality? So talk to me a little bit more about that piece. You're working with community members to identify these solutions and move forward on these challenges because the the thing that I am sure is incredibly frustrating to folks who have been doing this work for years, these challenges are not new. The racial injustice that we see, the inequity for healthcare and housing, the 
way that the digital divide impacts education. This stuff is not new. This has been happening for decades. It just has been exacerbated and highlighted in the context of our current environment. But what we do have now is particularly the private sector really paying attention, right? Where there's uh, excitement to engage, certainly to come out in support of the communities that are being impacted or disproportionately impacted. And they're seeking to act, but the way that they act is not always, does not always engage community members' perspective and lived experience. And it sounds like that's part of how you have built your organization from the ground up. Like really thinking about what the experiences and needs are of the individuals that you're ultimately trying to serve. So how, how do you go about that? How do you think about it? It's a, a great question. And you brought up, I think, a number of, of, of points that you know, we think about in this time. Yes, we are in a moment where there is an explosion of interest in cities, in urban issues, uh, in uh, disinvested communities. And there's a lot of writing. There is a, a new cadre of impact investors uh, and others who are focused on those problems uh, and solutions. I think the first thing we have to do is arrive at a shared narrative about what exactly is the problem. For many people who go through disinvested communities that are invariably black and brown predominantly, and they see the conditions there, there are a whole set of assumptions <laughs> and there's a history of rhetoric and thinking around why these conditions exist. And for many people, what they think they're observing is the result of people who don't care about their communities or make poor decisions or need more personal responsibility or a host of other tropes that uh, we've heard over decades to explain urban disadvantage and disinvested communities. Uh, and we are now in a space where uh, we are beginning to understand the, the, the you know, history of lining, of housing discrimination, of lending discrimination, of vigilante violence, of uh, highway policy, and all of the things that have created the conditions we see and created the disparities and the imbalances. And if we start from that shared narrative, right, if we realize that what we're observing is not a failure of, of people who live in these neighborhoods, but rather a failure of the rest of us, right? A failure of national, uh, state and local, you know, federal, state and local policy, uh, and a deliberate attempt to divest and redirect resources uh, away from this, a, a, a myopia of only considering policing and criminal justice, uh, and in, policing and, and incarceration uh, as the preferred responses to urban disinvestment. And so the first thing that we must do is demand that everyone acknowledge this history, remove the stigma uh, and the shaming of poor Black communities, and acknowledge uh, that what we see is not an accident. It is not something that uh, happened because some individual made a poor decision. It is what we should expect from generations and decades of, of, of policy and law in politics uh, that have created uh, these these imbalances. So that's the first thing that we must do. And we, if we do that, then we have to center and lift up the voices of the people uh, who live in these communities. We have to acknowledge that they have uh, intelligence, uh, that they have vision, that they know best what is what's needed in their communities. 
And so we have to listen and there has to be uh, humility and there has to be an openness to put these people in these neighborhoods in the center and that we are there to support and bring resources and and, and lift up uh, their voices. And then we have to be innovative about how we bring together issues uh, or the tools of public finance, of urban planning, of, of, of racial equity, of uh, real estate development to create the types of places and services and amenities and infrastructure and resources that communities need to be whole and to thrive. And, and so I, I think that order is is kind of what we focus on here at Build Baton Rouge, what we mean when we say equitable development. It's what we mean when we say racial equity. And certainly thinking of that in the context of our community's history. Baton Rouge has a deep and long civil rights history. We are the first, we are the community that has the first organized bus boycott of the civil rights era, the Baton Rouge bus boycott. We've had one of the longest school desegregation lawsuits in the country. So, and, and the racial divides that we see in our city are, are deep and they are longstanding and, and, and many times there's silence around them. So we want to cut through that. We want to unapologetically talk about race and talk about inequality and talk about this history. Uh, and that, we believe, is, is the only way forward. But as you mentioned, it begins with lifting up community voices and making sure that we respect and acknowledge and listen to those people who are most affected and most impacted uh, by the decisions that have been made in this city that we all collectively are responsible for. Well, and like so many of us that are in this cross-sector systems change type work, we know that the challenges are institutional and structural and that largely individuals are carrying out inequitable policies that were crafted before their time, right? Some are creating new, but a lot of this is about education and enlightenment of the folks that are in the decision-making roles, are in power, and sometimes don't even understand what they're perpetuating, right? The question I was going to ask you is, even though these challenges are incredibly structural, institutional, large, it almost starts with changing the mind of individuals or opening the minds of individuals in these conversations, in these meetings, as part of these initiatives. And just curious what you've seen there. How does how does that work? How have you made that happen? It can be challenging, right? All politics is local. And while there is a burgeoning national discussion around urban innovation and how do you address these longstanding cities, right? Baton Rouge is, is not that much different than many other places. Uh, the narrative changes a little bit here and there, but the, you know, the 20th century story of suburban development, of housing development, of, of infrastructure development is one that had as one of its priorities, the marginalization uh, of black communities. And that's just that's just a fact. <laughs> and so and it's it's federal policy. You go read the congressional record. You can you can really research this and we can we can you know, follow the, the breadcrumbs to this current moment to understand what's happening. But everyone doesn't understand that. Uh, and, and everyone uh, 
hasn't had access to uh, that history, hasn't availed themselves of, of that knowledge. And in the in the vacuum that is created, they filled it with the same stereotypes and stigmas uh, that have also been longstanding and that also predate their time and what they're observing, even if they aren't aware of it. And so, you know, you have to be uncompromising in acknowledging uh, this truth. And that is going to alienate some, it is going to make some uncomfortable. But I think in our time, there is more than any other time an opportunity to have these conversations, to see other models happening in cities uh, that are also wrestling with this history and the current state of, of their environment. And I think you can point to those innovations for people in your own community who uh, may be uh, a little more um, uh, restricted in <laughs> their awareness of what's going on in the world uh, to say, look, if 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 you don't uh, understand this history, know that other communities are making big strides and and rethinking how they address these problems. And if you want to be on the cutting edge, and if you want to be a place that is known for innovation, then uh, this is where we need to be. But more than that, I, I always lead and finish with, we have a moral obligation. What we see in our city is a reflection on all of us. And it tarnishes the best parts of our city and it exposes uh, who we are as a community. It speaks volumes. And so at the end of the day, I do think we have a moral obligation to be concerned about this and to allow our political commitments and our resources follow that concern. Well, and clearly you personally feel a moral obligation, right? That is what I imagine what drives you in this work. Tell us about how you came to it. What what brought you to this particular perch that you're in right now? I know you're also in the spare time that I can't imagine you have, <laughs> a professor of law at LSU, Louisiana State University, you've had background in real estate, public policy, politics, social justice, and I'm sure all of those things serve you in your current role. Tell us about your career path. They do. So I, I, I uh, was a kid who grew up drawing houses and buildings. I was an architecture nerd. I studied architecture at Howard University, and in that process, loved uh uh, Howard University and loved the architecture program there, but decided that I, I didn't um, want to practice architecture and went into business after school, working in consulting and, and running my own uh, business before turning away from that, <laughs> saying that as much as I loved entrepreneurship, and I, I love some aspects of that work. I wanted to uh, study public policy and, and politics. And so I uh, enrolled at the uh, Harvard Kennedy School, where I earned my master's of public policy, and focused a lot on social inequality. I was a prison educator in Boston during that time. And uh, in that space, realized finally that I wanted to go to law school. Actually, my father was an attorney and, and, and judge, and I grew up around a number of attorneys. And maybe that's why it took me so long to admit that uh, that was a path that I wanted to take. Uh, children do that sometimes. But I, I went to law school and had the opportunity to work in the uh, Washington, D.C. office of then-Senator Mary Landrieu. I started that position the day after Hurricane Katrina struck and worked uh, the entire year, first year of the Katrina aftermath, and really solidified my desire to come back to Louisiana, to my hometown of Baton Rouge, and uh, be engaged in this work. I landed back here 
in 2006, working for a law firm, Jones Walker, where I did real estate and land use law. And um, in that space, got to rekindle my interest in architecture and, and urban design and um, uh, through the projects that I was working on, but also began working civically in this community. I, I, I sat on the city's transit board and, and actually ran that board, focusing on mass transit, which I think is one of the most underappreciated social justice issues of our time. And particularly in a community as car oriented as Baton Rouge is, enjoyed that work tremendously had an opportunity to join the faculty of the LSU Law Center, where I've since become a tenured member of the faculty. And in that space, teaching real estate development, uh, urban land use and development property, and also working um, uh, in various projects as a consultant in real estate and then still doing my community work. And all of that kind of came together uh, when the mayor and the board of the Redevelopment Authority asked me to take the helm of, of this organization. When I walked in the door in 2018, I had one employee and had a mandate to kind of rebuild this organization and and rethink it. And and we we took that seriously as we, we knew that organizations, traditional redevelopment authorities around the country were having to confront uh, the new language and thinking around uh, equitable development, racial equity, sustainable design, thinking about uh, urban inequality, thinking about climate change, thinking about the coming uh, automation that is going to also uh, challenge cities. And we wanted to create an organization that reflected all of that uh, in its contemporary uh, form, but also in its future vision. And so we changed the name to Build Baton Rouge last year. We now have uh, 12 employees and are hopefully making an impact uh, in the city we love and in doing so, hopefully reaching beyond here to to lift up Baton Rouge and ex- as an example of what can happen and to also be in community with uh, like-minded people around the country who are doing similar work in their communities. And I think we all benefit when we are able to kind of highlight these values and this thinking in the work that we do and in the national discussion around uh, cities, urban inequality, urban development, climate change, automation, and how we should think in ways that provide everyone an opportunity to live a uh, um, uh, live a good life and 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 be healthy and happy and whole in their communities and have the their communities in its physical form and the resources that are there and the amenities that are there reflect uh, a, a vision of of equity and justice that values everyone's opportunity uh, to have opportunities and that our cities would be places that reflect. That's really remarkable work, and I know that one of the things that your organization, you are also just so good at is thinking about partnerships, right? And to that point of it taking what you're doing at Build Baton Rouge and thinking about it as the the nuggets of this initiative that can be spanned to other cities, other communities that are dealing with very similar challenges. This is a national, global challenge that we face and uh, Common Impact and Bill Baton Rouge had the opportunity to cross paths through J.P. Morgan Chase's Virtual Service Corps program, which is a program that connects teams of talented corporate employees to talented community organizations to 
figure out how to together solve challenges and would love to hear your take on that partnership, what y'all worked on together and um, where it goes from here. Well, uh, you know, we are so thankful for JP Morgan Chase's partnership. Uh, they have supported us not only through the virtual services core, but as uh, uh, they've supported our work with grants uh, to revitalize uh, a, a one of our most blighted commercial corridors in Baton Rouge and the communities that surround it, the Plank Road Corridor. And we're very proud, proud of the Plank Road Master Plan that was developed with J.P. Morgan Chase's support. Uh, you can go to hashtag Imagine Plank Road, or you can obviously go to our website at buildbatonrouge.org and learn more about that. We're really excited about that work and really proud of it. I mentioned to you in, in my career uh, track, I was a, a consultant at one point. And so I know the value that people outside of your organization who have fresh eyes uh, and energy uh, uh, can bring when you have capacity shortages. Uh, when frankly your your eyes are bigger than your stomach or, <laughs> or bigger than you know your 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 plate, and when we were given that opportunity, uh, I jumped at it because first of all, you know, if anyone wants to come and support us pro bono, I have work for you, uh, so please uh, share that with your listeners. <laughs> but I just thought it was so great to get a talented group of people just from around various places to come together and help us think through an issue, an idea that we wanted to advance that, frankly, we just didn't have the capacity to to advance. And a lot of times with community organizations like ours who are, you know, kind of stringing finances together and trying to keep the lights on and trying to keep things going, and you're trying to advance a vision and, and get buy-in in your community and, and build partnerships outside of your community to advance that vision, you know, you're flying the plane while building it. And so... The opportunity to have uh, the support of the Virtual Services Corps, I can't say enough about what that means to an organization like ours. And uh, the enthusiasm, the vigor, and just the vision that that team brought to the project. And this was the food incubator that we are planning for the Plank Road Corridor. Uh, and we're soon going to be making an announcement about that. We're excited to have uh, funding on the way to deliver a a community kitchen and food incubator into one of the poorest zip codes in the state of Louisiana. Something that will enhance the community, that would be a resource for existing mom and pop businesses, uh, food businesses who are often operating out of their home kitchens uh, and don't have affordable, rentable commercial kitchen space and meeting space uh, to grow and expand their business. Food is so important, uh, particularly to black and brown communities that we thought that was just essential. So the, the partnership with the Virtual Services Corps was, you know, it was a godsend for us. We're so appreciative of it for it and are, are making plans to build on that work as we move into the next phase. So it was it was an incredible opportunity and working relationship. We feel very fortunate to have had. Well, and, you know, as you're talking, it just reminds me of those moments that we were discussing before where change happens at individual level first, right? Where you change someone's mind or you expose someone. And I think that to me has always been the most powerful component of these pro bono and skills-based volunteer engagements, because it's, you know, you really, as a corporate employee who might not be exposed to 
community challenges every day in the way that nonprofit leaders are, or social enterprise leaders, public sector leaders are, uh, you get a firsthand look and it really, it can activate the good intent and grace that people have as they come to these initiatives and find a really tangible way to um, give back and contribute and figure out how to access yeah, you know, the expertise that community members and organizations have. So um, envious hearing you talking about it. <laughs> so it absolutely. I mean, we, we never we view every opportunity to talk about our work and the city that we love as, you know, this is something we just don't want to shortchange. And so the team that came together, I hope that they were introduced to that to the extent that they hadn't been before, that they see our challenges. I view the, the very dire challenges that we face as opportunities. Uh, and they're not things that, you know, it does us no good to be shamed, ashamed of them. I want to hold them out to everyone and say, come help us. Uh, if you're concerned about racial equity, if you're concerned about social justice, if you're concerned about climate change, if you're concerned about how do you turn around disinvested communities, if you're concerned about anti-displacement development and planning, uh, if you're concerned about those things, uh, we're a laboratory. Come, come build with us. And uh, as we tackle these challenges, because we have open space and we have something to teach the nation, I think, about how to uh, be committed to these issues, to think creatively, uh, all while lifting up people and, and making their lives better. So that, that's what we always want to promote with Built Baton Rouge. And we are so thankful of everyone who gives up their time and, and talents and intelligence and resources to, to support us in that work. What's the best part of your day? Seeing my kids. <laughs> uh, yeah. Seeing my kids. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a father of three and uh, I have an eight-year-old and, and a twin six-year-old. And, uh, you know, I am in awe and amazed by them every day. And so seeing them uh, in the morning, getting ready for school, and, and just going through the motions of watching their lives unfold is, is the best part of everything. Uh, it's beautiful. I know I have, uh, I have two little ones myself and I, my work and lots of things that I do so meaningful, but there's nothing better than standing in front of the door when they're running home from school. Yeah. And, and, and we do it for them, right? I mean, uh, all of us have to give an account of what we did when we were here uh, and this level of, of suffering, frankly, this level of deprivation, this level of scarcity. What did we do? You know, my, my children are blessed to have all the opportunities and resources and, and support that any child could want. Uh, and so I want to create an example where they know that they have a compromising responsibility to think about community, to be engaged in community, and to do work that advances community. And I, I want to be an example of that to them. And I want to be able to, to show them what I and others did with the time that we had to advance um, that, that ultimate goal. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. I could talk to you for far longer, but I think that leaving our audience with that really call, individual call to action, right? Um, really making making meaning out of our time here, particularly in this context and in these overlapping crises that we're all dealing with, figuring out how to direct our energy and our work so that we're proud of what we can tell our children and our family at the end of the day. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I enjoyed this and uh, would love to come back anytime to, to give additional updates on what we're doing here at Bill Batten. Well, I'll take you up on that offer. Thank you again. And uh, excited for, for the next installment of your work and to hear updates in the future. Thank you, Chris. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Pro Bono Perspectives today. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out our website at commonimpact.org. Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues about us. Tune in to our upcoming episodes to hear from everyday leaders using their skills to help their communities. 